Welcome to Realty Talk, the show that brings together the country's most authoritative and respected property experts. Follow us on all the socials and subscribe for updates and exclusive offers. Realty Talk is powered by realty.com.au, connecting buyers, sellers and agents differently. Hi and welcome to this week's Realty Talk show, your property hub's go-to home for property investment insights, inspiration and stories from Australia's top property experts, leaders and analysts. I'm your anchor, Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance, and this week's show is all about affordability for investors, landlords, buyers, and renters. Because there's a lot of talk about housing affordability, but when was the last time you heard about investor affordability, about how tough mum and dad property investors are faring as costs continue to spiral? Leading property analyst Simon Presley from Propertyology joins us to balance the books on this important subject. And according to Ian Ugate of Invita, the reason everyone everywhere is suffering housing affordability challenges is due to a property market mismatch. And he joins me today to reveal a great solution to solve it for the benefit of all. Now, before we get into it, if you're enjoying the show, I want to thank you for tuning in. And I need to ask you a small, special, special, I can't even say it, a small personal favour that will have a big impact because we really need your help in order to continue to attract great guests and enjoy great conversations by hitting the like button as well as the subscribe button wherever you're listening to or watching the show, because we're on a mission to get to 1 million subscribers in order to continue to attract the best of the best. And by helping me to help you, together, we're actually going to help those that are less fortunate that have no voice and have no choice, because for every new subscriber, together, we're going to help save lives, as we'll donate a day's worth of life-saving water to families in Tigray, Ethiopia. So do everyone a massive favour and take a couple of seconds to subscribe now. And make sure you also sign up on the realty.com.au homepage. We'll also get a free copy of my award-winning book, Get Invested, just for making the effort. We've got lots of property insights to share, so let's get on with the show. Property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year. To make sure you maximise deductions, you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country. BMT Tax Depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry. They've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties Australia-wide. BMT guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote. Now, I don't know about you, but it feels like barely a day passes without a miserable story about housing affordability and the terrible plight of tenants. But when was the last time you heard a story about investor affordability, about how tough mum and dad property investors are faring as costs continue to spiral? The sad reality is that there's constant negative noise about tenants not being able to find rentals or afford rapidly rising rents, and the convenient donkey to pin the tail on and point the finger at is always the villainised, silent but deadly, greedy property investor. But does this myth actually stack up? Well, to put this to the test, we're joined by Australia's number one property analyst and Real Estate Institute Hall of Famer, Simon Presley from Propertyology. So welcome back to the show, Simon. Thank you, Bushy. Rents, geez, we've uh, been a big topic the last few years, hasn't it? It sure has, and and rightly so to some degree. But uh, as you and I know, the the causes of that go way back. But uh, way back, yeah. 
Simon, I, I know you've done a lot of research on the real picture when it comes to actual cash flow affordability for investors. So what's your research telling you about investor cash flow trends across the country? Yeah, well, I guess firstly, people need to be reminded that um, we go back 70 years since the completion of World War II, mate. And um, for every one of those 70 years, three in 10 households across this huge country have lived in rental accommodation. So we're talking about something that is essential, the roof over people's heads, uh, and 96% of Australia's total rental stock is funded by that everyday Aussie, only 4% by government. So yes, we looked, um, our, our research report, you you're referring to looked recently at cash flows. Now, one side of that is the income, the rent, the tenant, that's the expense. But a summary of, of rents first. Um, over the last five years, um, a standard house in Melbourne, up $80 a week, Sydney up $120. Bear in mind, over that five years, um, they went down. They've come back up again recently in Sydney and Melbourne. Other parts of the show have just been up, 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 up for four, five, six years. Um, but, you know, I guess different parts of um, Australia, Hobart up 140, Bendigo up $120 per week, Dubbo up 135, Albury up 135 a week, Cairns up 140, Maryborough in Queensland up 185, Launceston up 140, Bustleton up 160. It's widespread. Yeah. And, and roughly what does that equate to? About $5,000 extra income per year this year compared to five years ago. That's the income side of things. Yeah. Um, the expenses and the red tape has gone up much more than the investor's income. Uh, so much so that if someone's looking to invest in Australian real estate now with a 10% deposit, the evidence tells us that the traditional, you know, whatever everyone wants, the cash flow positive property does not exist unless you're making a very compromised asset selection decision. The new norm for someone buying a property today with a 10% deposit is an annual shortfall of between fifteen dollars and $20,000 per year. And if you're buying in expensive markets like Sydney, Melbourne or Canberra, um, it's thirty dollars to $40,000 shortfall. Mm, that's a... so these, these aren't big fat cats that are, you know, these are your everyday Aussies on everyday Aussie incomes. Um, and as I said, the rents are going up and people are sort of criticising and saying, is it the, you know, um, it's the investor's fault for putting rents up? Mate, like everything in life, if there is more demand and supply available, people have to pay more for what's left. And if you want the prices to come down, well, you need to put more supply into the market and create more competition. They're only going up because there is no, there is no competition. Spot on. Now, uh, uh, we bring up a, an excellent slide uh, that really summarises the property investor cash flows uh, right across the country. But uh, while we're taking that in, uh, what are the major drivers of increased holding costs as you see it? Yeah, and look, um, before I answer that, that the graphic there summarising for people of, of Australia's 20 largest cities, obviously our eight capital cities are among that, there are only six out of our 20 largest cities where the annual cash flow shortfall, if you're buying a property now, is yep. less than $10,000. None of them are positive cash flow, but there are only six that are less than 10. Uh, they are Perth, Darwin, Townsville, Cairns, Mackay, and Toowoomba. Everything else in Australia will cost a lot more than $10,000. The expenses, um, the standard insurance premium has probably gone up by about $1,000 per annum over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and insurance companies in some parts of the country, frankly, have just taken the piss. Now, that doesn't just extend to um, investors. That's owner-occupiers and, and everybody. With natural disasters, it makes it very easy for, for the insurance companies to say, hey, we've got, to, we've got to charge you more. But about 1000 bucks 
more as it's costing investor council rates. Yeah. Um, just maybe city councils jack those up, but let's say on average they've gone up by $500 per week. Repairs and maintenance, all the materials and labour, I'm going to guess that those costs have gone up by about 25% across the board in the last 12, 18 months. Land tax, that varies from state to state and investor to investor, but they haven't gone down, mate. They've, got, they've gone up. Yeah. Um, and the biggest expense to any investor will always be their annual interest bill, which is interesting if it depends, because that depends on the size of your mortgage, but also when did you buy the property? Yes. Because when you bought the property determines the price that, of the, the value of the debt that you purchased compared to if you're buying now. So if you, if you owned a property in, say, um, let's, let's look at a 500 grand loan for an investor somewhere in Australia. Yeah. Um, in 2019, you were paying about 3.5% which is about a $17,500 interest expense, and your property would have been roughly cash flow neutral in 2019. Yeah. Then rates dropped. They started dropping before COVID, and then they continued to drop when COVID arrived. So let's look at 2021. That same $500,000 mortgage, your interest rate was probably 2%. So your interest bill was probably about ten grand, and you would have been cash flow positive by about $5,000 per annum. But as of May last year through till now, interest rates have gone up nine times. Um, your interest rate now is probably 4.5%. So your annual expense is now 22.5%. What was a cash flow neutral property in 2019 is probably a cash flow shortfall of seven grand. That's if you bought the property back then. If you're buying that same property now, it could be $20,000 or more shortfall. Yeah, very good point. If you look at the combination of those things, one of the other things that's really driving increased expenses uh, with as each of the states uh, doubles down on the tenancy legislation, the the level of compliance that's now being imposed on landlords and the, the capital upgrades they're needing to make to the, the properties just to uh, tick the box is also adding pretty significant costs. So uh, some certainly some pressures there. Then if we sort of circle around that then, Simon, what's what's the solution to easing rental pressures as you see it? Well, let's go back to one of the earlier comments I made in this interview. 96% of our total rental pool in Australia are owned by the investors, and it will always be that way. Anyone who thinks governments are going to find a big bucket of cash, particularly in a climate when they've got a heap of debt and they're looking to increase taxes to pay down that debt. Like we can't expect any level of government to all of a sudden, you know, fund all these extra rental properties, right? So if we want to take pressure off the rental market, if we want to um, stop rents going through the roof, if we want to stop someone, uh, you know, not being able to rent a home and having to move into a car or a garage or a spare bedroom, we need more rental supply. So the focus on any change needs to be on how do we get more supply? Yeah. You yep. don't get more supply by smoking green weed and saying we need to cap rents. Re investing is a discretionary action. It's already a very restricted environment for those who care about their financial future to operate in. You want to restrict them further by saying, oh, we're going to limit your ability to earn an income. They say that to anyone. Say that to any business. Oh, we, you know, you can keep taking all the risks and you can keep doing the hard work, but we're, you, know, you can't earn any more income they're going to say, I'll close the door. So, yeah. so, you, so I'm going to maybe say what you can do. These are what you can't do. Yeah. And if we, just, if we just do that, we'll get more rental supply in time. Um, we've got 700,000 extra people coming from overseas in the next 12 months. Like people need to take this seriously. We've already got 
tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of existing Australians who can't find rental accommodation. We're letting extra 700,000 um, people in. So uh, we don't propose to increase land tax on investors. Yep. We don't propose to bring in more legislation to make life harder for investors. We don't propose to say, hey, Bushy, one of your investment properties is part of the holiday leasing pool, which is supporting uh, the tourism sector so that when someone wants to go on a holiday, they've got you know, places to pick from and supporting jobs for people who work in restaurants and hotels. We don't say to Bushy, hey, mate, you can't do that anymore. Or, or, or you can, but we're going to tax you because you're doing that, right? So you just go up your bum. So we need to stop focusing on how can we hit these people who have the capacity and the motivation to provide more rental accommodation. It's not red carpet stuff. Investors don't need red carpets thrown out, but you've got to remove the grip that's been put there. And the dialogue needs to change. The people who've made these changes, not only have they made the change, but they are the ones with the angry voices saying to the tenants, yeah, they, these people are grubs. They're providing homes for 8 million people. So support those people who provide those homes and in time they'll provide more. Talk nicely about them. Put them up on a, on a pedestal as role models, discipline, goal setters, financial independence. They're, totally. they're aspiring citizens. Right, one hundred percent agree. And and instead of disincentivizing them, driving them out, that it, if if we're serious about uh, increasing the supply, we actually need to start incentivizing because the governments aren't putting their hands in the pocket to build anymore. Yes, they've come up with a, a couple of schemes that are relying on old old programs that are, are going to add a, a drop in the bucket. But they they certainly need to really embrace investors as a solution to the exercise and start uh, making it easy for them, mate. So, look, totally agree. Uh, can you uh, to sort of put some colour around the exercise in relation to investor cash flows? Can you share a couple of yep. case studies uh, across a couple of locations in recent times that uh, brings that to the fore? Something I prepared earlier for you, Bushy, as they say in the, in the cooking shows. Um, so what we've done is a case study comparing our oldest capital city, which is obviously Sydney, with our oldest or second oldest, a bit debatable, but region, um, which is Launceston. So um, let's imagine that we were that stereotypical property investor and we wind the clock back to 2019. We had a 10% deposit and we we're looking to buy a property and we were tossing up between Launceston and Parramatta, which is Middle Ring, Sydney. Yep. So Parramatta first. Um, in 2019, that standard property would have had a cash flow shortfall of $11,500. Um, over the following years, rent's gone up by, two, uh, by $20 per week. Um, but with the recent interest rate increases, that same property now, if you bought it in 2019, now has a shortfall of $27,000 per year. That Parramatta property has enjoyed spectacular growth, 55% capital growth over that period of time. Yep. Launceston. When you purchased that property back then, it would have been cash flow neutral. Yep. The rent has increased by $110 per week compared to Parramatta's $20 per week. Yep. Yes, the interest rates have gone up in Launceston, Parramatta, everywhere else in Australia. So instead of being a neutral property, it's cash flow um, shortfall now of $1,000 compared to $27,000 in Parramatta. And the capital growth for those who, you know, um, uh, believe their own bullshit that uh, regions don't grow in capital cities. So Launceston's enjoyed 73% capital growth. Sydney's enjoyed 55 Now, the sceptic will be listening to this going, yeah, but 55% of a home in Parramatta is greater growth than 73% of a home in, in, in Launceston. True. 
if you could afford it, afforded the million dollars to buy the Parramatta home, you still have in, you still should have invested a million dollars somewhere else, right? In Launceston, you could have bought three properties for that. Now, I'm a big advocate, don't put all your eggs in the one basket. So I would have bought, and not only would I, I did, one in Launceston, one in somewhere else, one in somewhere else that had good outlook. So I would have got the 70% capital growth compared to 55%. But most importantly, on the topic of this interview, my cash flow. Instead of being that Parramatta investor that I've now got to find 27 grand every year, I've got a cash flow neutral portfolio that's grown by more than Parramatta anyway. Yeah, that's uh, it's always about location. There's no question about it. So uh, given this whole context then, Simon, what are your best suggested approaches to creating sustainable cash flows and holding cost affordability for investors moving forward? Well, that case study is probably a good example of, of how I, I do it personally, how I encourage every property investor to do it. So firstly, disregard where you live because you're not buying the home for you to live in. Yep. Consider 100% of your options. So what that, what that means and how I do that is the 400 townships, which includes our eight capital cities in this huge country, they're the equivalent of companies on my stock exchange. Yep. It doesn't matter who I bank with. If I'm a share investor, it doesn't matter who I bank with. It doesn't mean I need to buy shares in that bank. I look at all the companies in the stock exchange. For it. So for a property investor, disregard where you live. In fact, if you are an owner-occupier, I would suggest the first place to eliminate from your selection criteria is your hometown because you're just putting all your eggs in the one basket. So that's sustainability number one. Yep. Um, don't put too much uh, capital into any one asset. In this current climate, I have an upper ceiling on any property that I'd either buy for myself or propertyology clients, no more than 750 grand. Most properties we buy are somewhere between 550 and $650,000 in different parts of Australia. Yep. On that, deliberately spread your capital across different towns and cities in different states. Don't just throw a dart at a board and say, that's different to where I own at the moment. But where you own at the moment is, is where you should not be looking to buy next. Totally. Um, and, and build that diversification in your property portfolio just as the really astute share investor has um, stocks in different companies and in different industry sectors. I only ever buy detached houses. Probably now more than ever because people are more acutely aware of cash flow. Yeah. Um, they, 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 they will be leaning towards taking shortcuts. They might not realise the short, shortcut and go, I can't afford a house in that city, but I can afford to buy the apartment. Or the cash flow isn't as severe um, to buy the apartment as if I bought the house. We've got 20 years of evidence. Apartments do grow, but they're flat out by growing the half the rate of the detached house. Yep. Um, Interest-only loans for investments and pay down the principal off the non-deductible family home as aggressively as you can. So you're still paying down debt, but you're capping um, uh, uh, the interest that you're paying, which is good for your cash flow from investment. purposes. that's my, I guess, bag of goodies for investing in a safe way. Yeah, I love it, mate. Uh, some uh, time-honoured principles there that, again, uh, people sort of get... Uh, lost in the forest, uh, you start applying those things, uh, good quality areas with a, a standalone detached home, uh, then uh, with all the growth drivers, you, you're likely to really put yourself in the right position and minimise the cash flow at the same time. So look, as always, Simon, I, I want to thank you for these eye-opening insights. And as always, thanks again for sharing your words of wisdom on the show today. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Simon. Well, as it's plain for all to see, hardworking mum and dad investors like you and I continue to carry the can and take the hits as our properties 
Interestingly, it costs us more to hold every year. And it's clear that continually increasing holding costs combined with an environment where all levels of government are unfortunately unsupportive and are actually disincentivizing property investors and continue to make it harder for us all at a time when they actually need to be doing the reverse in order to start bridging the escalating housing shortage gap, which is actually prolonging the rental pain for tenants. So if you want to learn more from Simon and the Propertyology National Buyers Agents team on this or many other hot property topics, check out and subscribe on propertyology.com.au. Keep watching Realty Talk, your property hub's go-to place for all things property. Successful property investment is a game of finance. Do you have the right team and the right game plan? Realty Talk is brought to you by Know How Property. More than mortgage brokers, Bushy Martin and his team of investment architects set you up with a sustainable strategy structured to lower your costs, tax, risk and stress while increasing your capacity for growth. Know How has helped over 1,900 homeowners and investors secure more than $800 million in property wealth. So get set to live more, work less, and live your legacy. Want to know how to invest in your freedom? Visit knowhowproperty.com.au. For years now, news headlines have been dominated by stories about housing unaffordability and the rental crisis. While at the same time, mum and dad property investors who carry the burden of providing the bulk of rental housing in Australia are increasingly struggling financially as interest rates rise and cost and compliance continue to escalate. Now, most of this has been blamed on the current and growing national housing shortage as hundreds of thousands of new migrants flood into the country, while the constant game of finger-pointing between all levels of government and the private sector continues. But nothing changes. So it's clear that the current housing system is well and truly broken. But is it all just about the housing shortage in terms of numbers, or is there more to play here? Well, today's special guest has uncovered that it's more about a housing market mismatch. So to reveal what this all means and the opportunities that this creates, we're joined by property expert, educator, author, and change maker, Ian Degate from Practical Property Investment, who wears many property hats as founder of the Australian Housing Initiative and Invita Co-Living. So welcome to Realty Talk, Ian. Hi, how are you? Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, great. Well, it's a really uh, a good topic that you're focusing your energy on. So to sort of get stuck straight into that, what is the mismatch in the housing marketplace? And more importantly, what's caused it? Um, well, it starts back in 1881 and the Australian household size was, um, so the actual house itself was average size was 35 square metres. And in that property, there was 5.5 people. Um we go to 1960 and 85 square metre house average size. Most of them built by a guy called, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, LJ Hooker. Um, yes. Two bedroom, one bathroom who had to go become a real estate agent because no one would sell his properties because they were slightly different. Um, in that property, there's 3.8 people. And then we fast forward again to 2011. Uh, we build the largest houses in the world at 246 square metres with 2.5 people in them. And we build even larger now, and we've reclaimed the biggest houses in the world in Australia again. We've now got 2.38 people in each house. And this started to alarm me a little bit. So the mismatch that happened was that we've got these larger houses with um, 
the smaller amount of families living in them. So effectively, the mismatch is we've got four-bedroom houses with the majority of the people needing um, you know, a studio, one-bedroom or two-bedroom home. And, uh, you know, Australia's not ready for units as far as, you know, living in them. They want grass between the toes. Yep. This is backed by census data. So if I take you to census data, we go back and we have a look at it. Um, you know, in 2011 to 2016, so those five years, when we talk about the new um, homes that were built in that five-year period, 74% of them were three, four, and five-bedroom houses. The majority of them are four bedrooms. At the same time, 51% of the new households created were singles and couples. So I'll explain that. Um, this home used to have six people in it, my four daughters and my um, ex-wife. Yep. We split up. Um, she's now got her own household with um, one of the daughters and technically two of the daughters. One of the daughters goes between the two. Yep. So really a, a, a double household over there. One daughter's moved out with her boyfriend, so that's another household, um, and one of my daughters lives on her own. So we've out of the one household, four households were created. Yep. So 51% of them, singles and couples. Well, you go, okay, half the people need smaller homes, yet three-quarters of the homes being built are too big. And that was 2011 to 2016, and someone might say, oh, but that was just that five years. Well, 2016 to 21, 82% of all new houses built were are likely four bedrooms, three, four or five bedroom homes. And it went from 51% to 70% singles and couples. So now we've got the majority, 80% of the houses being built, three, four and five bedrooms, and the majority, 70% of people not needing those homes. So the greatest mismatch that we've had in Australia is that we've got these large homes for people that have no choice but to rent and live in them, which is quite costly when you have when you're a single couple and your only choice is a three or four or five bedroom house. It's a pretty expensive rental. Yeah, one hundred percent. And at the same time, investors who are providing that stock are, are suffering because the sort of yields they're getting on the on the properties, uh, given that exercise, aren't working well for them either. So, uh, so if we're bringing those two together, then, eh? and what solutions do you see to this dilemma? Well, you know, when I first started talking about. Um, this issue of the mismatch uh, in 2011, 10, 11. The amount of empty bedrooms, um, and this is uh, through someone else's um, uh, research, the amount of empty bedrooms in Australia at that point in time were 12 million empty bedrooms every night. And um, you think about people saying there's an affordability issue. We actually don't have an affordability issue. We have a a, a wrong usage issue. The, the, the purpose of those properties are not being correct, um, not yes. being correctly. So yep. we've now got, um, you know, 12 years down the track, we've now got 13 and a half million empty bedrooms in Australia. So every night we all go to bed and we've got a problem. So the solution to this is saying, because whenever someone says there's an affordability issue in housing, um, everyone says, well, the government should build more housing for social, um, for social, you know, housing. And and they just don't have the money, right? No. And the the solution to this is to actually use the investors that created this unaffordable marketplace because um, the government put negative gearing in place and there's nothing better to say to an Australian that if you want to pay less tax, how about you go out and lose some money to do that? Um, <laughs> so they created this marketplace where they created property to be a commodity. So if we could use the same people to convert it, 
then you know, back to an affordability option, we're good. We've got empty bedrooms in investor properties all over the country. So if you look at it and say, well, how can I um, make this better for the community and also for myself as an investor, we can look at policies that are unused and unknown across the property, across the industry of Australia when it comes to property. I myself, when I first started talking about this, got shouted down as... um, uh, as a guy that was going to fail, that um, you know was going to have uh, pedophiles, uh, drug dealers, criminals, you know, low socio people living in the properties that I was creating, and all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, all of a sudden, co living has become the buzzword for an investor that owns residential property to get a return. And with lying with rising interest rates, um, we can still maintain positive cash flow whilst everyone else is actually negative cash flow and hurting. Yeah, yeah, and and the the other big exercise there that I say, given the number of split families and and particularly uh, older single females that end up on the wrong side of the uh, of the street late in life, uh, the option that you're suggesting there with uh, the co living type arrangements is is a, a great fit for them. I would have thought. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the the biggest growing demographic of homelessness in the country right now is a fifty five plus single female. And it's not something that I was aware of until we started producing these properties. And then the, the research was there. And they, they're women that looked after house and home for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, they get to the point where the kids are off at university and left home. And, you know, she looks across at him and he looks at her and they go, this is just not working. She actually despises him because of, um, you know, having lost the last 20 or 30 years. So he waves a little tiny amount of cash in front of her and she just wants to out. She signs the settlement. She goes, she might have $100,000. She goes out and finds out that she can't get a job because she's unqualified. The most qualified people in this country who um, timetabled, financed, looked after house and home, looked after kids, like everything that they had to do, and yet they can't get a job because they don't have a qualification. They don't have any super because obviously during those last however many years they weren't in a job, um, and then they can't afford where they want to live. And so we start providing this and they started knocking on the door and it's actually our anchor resident. It's the person we put in first and we build the co-living home around them. They become the adopted mother, grandmother. And, um, but there is, Bushy, there is one rule that we learned early on. You don't put two in the same house. Because <laughs> it's a nightmare. <laughs> yes, I can well imagine. Well, it's sort of looking, looking at that whole exercise then, uh, and uh, what opportunities uh, is this creating? Well, the opportunity here is that it creates an outcome for everyone. And the first one is these 55-year-old um, women, the 20 to 35-year-old professionals working their way up the ladder or the, the, the couple that's professional and wants to buy their home in the next three to five years. What co-living does is creates an opportunity then for them to, to rent a component of the house um, and save one third to one half of their weekly rent. So you use these. The opportunity is that these these um, properties can be converted legally across almost every state um, without needing to go to council and getting private certification. And you create what I call micro apartments. So every person has their own bedroom, their own sitting area, their own kitchenette, their own bathroom, and they share the common kitchen. No one ever goes there because they're can do it in their room um, and they share the laundry, which they go to twice a week. So effectively you're creating studios within the house legally and that saves them money. 
but a property owner investor that was previously getting $600 a week is now getting double the income at least. So $1,400, $1,500 for the same property that was converted from a four bedroom house into four micro apartments, or you could do five or six to get more cash flow. Um, the outcome then is that we're now freeing up. We take one front door and turn them into four front doors, which means we've now freed up three family homes somewhere else that these singles and couples were renting so that families can actually now have an opportunity. Now, I am by default creating a marketplace of oversupply to see if we can stagnate the rental cycle um, and create something that's actually going to be a benefit to everyone. Now, the last win is that um, we've got government that have got one third of the housing waiting list is what we used to call the, the, the lower end of the middle class they're on a housing waiting list and they shouldn't be there. And we've created accommodation. Now, if every investor that owns two properties in Australia just converted one of their properties, sorry, if if out of the 2 million um, people that own two properties in Australia, yep. we only converted 1 million of them, so half of them. Um, and we then said, well, actually, they don't even, let's halve it again. We could produce 2 million new front doors in six to nine months, um, especially if the government put some push behind it to say, hey, we'll take your land tax off you. As I said, who like hates paying tax, all of Australians. Um, all of a sudden, you'll have all of these investors creating the right amount of accommodation that will fix the problem in Australia. But uh, why is it that the thing that's most obvious <laughs> is the thing that's so often overlooked? It uh, <laughs> never staggers to amaze me, mate. And I, I really want to thank you for your very refreshing and eye-opening insights into this, Ian, and, and really want to thank you for your time on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Ian. Well, as you can see in here, there's much more to the housing affordability and housing supply crisis than meets the eye. So if you're inspired to challenge old, out-of-date and broken conventional wisdom, and become a property disruptor to create true win-win-win outcomes for everyone involved, reach out to Ian and his team at ianogate.com.au. That's U-G-A-R-T-E, agate.com.au. Stay with us for more on your Property Hub's go-to place for all things property here on Realty Talk. And that's a wrap for this week's show. Another big thanks to our guest, Simon Presley, and Ian Ugarte. And before we go, make sure you don't miss another episode of your trusted voice for all things property by subscribing to the Property Hub on your favourite podcast player now, where you'll also get the Get Invested podcast delivered to you each and every week. Thanks again to realty.com.au, BMT Tax Depreciation, Apiro Marketing, DM Media, and Southern Cross Osterio for their ongoing support. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance, and along with Kevin Turner and the entire Property Hub Realty Talk team, we thank you for getting invested in yourself by investing in us. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. Miss something in this week's show or want to catch up on past shows? Do it anytime at realty.com.au where we connect buyers, sellers and agents differently. 